The stone solid grooves on this underrated gem come courtesy of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. The soulful guitar comes courtesy of Skaggs and guest Dwayne Allman. Together they made Loan Me a Dime an FM radio classic. More than 10 minutes of knockout blues pleading and wailing. From Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. You're listening to Chasing Rolling Stones and this is episode number 7 featuring Boz Skaggs by Boz Skaggs. Hello, welcome everyone to episode number seven of Chasing Rolling Stones. I'm your host, Kyle, coming at you through your internet listening waves for another week of rock and roll history, opening up Rolling Stone Magazine's Vinyl Vault and taking a listen to the top 500 greatest albums of all time list. We're still at the back of the catalog, having reached our current stop at number 494, but that's okay. As the Jamaican bobsled team would say, peace be the journey. And, after a week off, I've got some new thoughts on thoughts on thoughts of where I want to go with the show, and hopefully these ideas will resonate with you and increase your enjoyment of the show. And by new thoughts, I mean some new segments for the show. Now, I think I started experimenting, you know, around episode number three, where I included my recommendation of the week, and this was my opportunity to talk about something that inspired me at some point throughout the week. Could be food, a place I visited, a hike, or just something cool in general that I wanted to share with you, my listeners. Well, I want to expand on this a little bit and add an additional piece of content at the top of the show before delving into our album of the week. And as you'll soon discover in a bit, I enjoy beer, craft beer specifically, and much like my palate for music, I want to try everything. This gets me in trouble. Every now and then, especially when I'm at the store, I'm at BevMo or Total Wine, and I'm just looking for that perfect fit, and I'm just walking the aisles back and forth. Do I want that? That? Have I tried this? No. And so it often gets me uh, spending a lot of time uh, unavoidedly. Often when selecting something to drink for the week, I will choose something different rather than something known. So I'm always constantly trying things. And so what I would like to do each week is bring these discoveries to you. Each week, I'd like to do an on-the-spot review, giving you a sense for what I'm tasting and maybe inspiring you to pick up a bottle or six-pack based on my thoughts. So what I'm thinking will be fun, and we'll see how long this goes and if it's going to be hard or not, is what I'd like to do is match the beer style to the genre of music for that week. Now, I had thought about doing location of brewery based on the location of the recording studio, but that might get a little bit challenging due to what I can get my hands on out here in California. So instead, we'll make it an exclusive California brewery that I pick up from, which will allow me to try as much as I can while I'm out here on the West Coast, and it might be fun to see uh, how I kind of mix and mingle everything. So having laid that out on you, let's start episode number seven off with what I'm calling Albums and Ales. Now, when looking for the right craft beer to pair with the soulful guitar Boz Skaggs and Dwayne Allman, his guest, my mind went straight for a brown ale. Deep amber to brown in color, with notes of caramel and chocolate, the American brown is typically drier than its English counterpart. I thought this would make a perfect pairing to this album, mostly due to the color alone. You know, you see this album cover, it's brown in tint, covering the entire photography of the album. 
And so it matched perfectly in my mind. And when looking for a California brewery, I found what I think is an impeccable selection that speaks to the heart of Boz Gags. Today, I'm cracking open a bomber bottle of Davy Brown Ale from Figueroa Mountain Brewery. Figueroa Mountain Brewery is located in Buellton, California, which is located just north of Santa Barbara in the Santa Inez Valley. Now, if I may be so bold to read you all or some of the marketing speak about this beer, Davy Brown Ale is inspired by a recluse pioneer named Davy Brown, who settled behind the northeast side of Figueroa Mountain on the west end of Sunset Valley in the late 1800s. Brewed with caramel and chocolate malts with Northern Brewer and Cascade hops, this brown ale has West Coast hop characteristics with notes of coffee. Enjoy with a good book in front of a crackling fire. Well, I don't have a crackling fire. It's much too hot out here out West uh, to be enjoying that. But I certainly have a great album. A little woodsy in and of itself. So let's see how this bad boy tastes, shall we? Now, today I'm using a regular pint glass to pour my Davy Brown Ale into. And just a little description of what the label looks like. We have uh, Davy Brown Ale in a very kind of flowy font type uh, with plenty of illustrations all around. We have illustrations of hops with their kind of leaves and vines, kind of oak leaves. It looks very fall and festive. And uh, we actually have an image of Davy Brown Ale, kind of a nice... Uh, I guess that's probably colored pencil illustration. Davy Brown's looking mighty dapper, if I may say so. He's wearing a three-piece suit. It's uh, light blue and green. He's he's very colorful man, uh, but he's an older gentleman. A long flowing white hair with a long beard as well, uh, and he's standing uh, atop a little hill overlooking what I assume to be his, his log cabin. The Chimney has smoke billing through, and uh, the tree nearby is in festive fall colors. So it uh, looks very appealing to me. Uh, and you have a little moniker with Figueroa Mountain Brewing Company stamped to the bottom left. It appears to be established in 2010, so a fairly new brewery. But uh, this beer is telling me uh, very boldly that this was the gold medal winner at the 2013 Great American Beer Festival for American-style brown ale. So regardless of this review, you can either trust me or you can trust the experts uh, in Denver, Colorado. I have to be honest, we had a little bit of a recording fail, and uh, I've already cracked this bad boy open once, so you won't get the sound effect this go-around. But uh, I can say that when I did pour it, it uh, had a very lovely pour. Uh, its coloration is much like Coca-Cola. It almost looks like a soda. Uh, and even the, the foam head came out uh, within the same size and uh, fizziness of a Coca-Cola itself. Now, on initial uh, scent uh, protocol, mm, you get tons of caramel notes. Now, I don't get that chocolate right off the bat, and certainly not coffee, but caramel is, you know, right up in, you know, your, your palate. So shall we taste Ooh, that is awfully tasty. Lots of caramel flavoring as well. It is very fizzy. It's a carbonated uh, style. I still don't get coffee, but I do get that kind of leftover bitterness of dark chocolate that's kind of coming through on the back end, which is very nice. Um, which, I mean, dark chocolate and coffee, you can kind of 
group them together, similar, a little different, but uh, overall, I I really enjoy this. You know, this would be a great uh, beer for a fall day. It, it's probably still a little too early to really be enjoying this. I know it's we're coming into football and fall season, but come like October or November when the you know colors start changing somewhere else in the world, not here in California, uh, and it, the you know the coolness starts crisping up the air. This would be a beautiful beer to just hang out on the porch and just enjoy this record without a doubt, uh, and uh, really have a have a good couple beers uh, and enjoy yourself. So there you go. That's our first album and ales review of the show. Davy Brown Ale from Figueroa Mountain Brewing Company. All right. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and move on over to my recommendation of the week, which we are now retitling Cahoot's Recommendation of the Week. And Cahoot is my nickname. And now I'd like to invite all of you to be on that personal level with me. Cahoot for Kyle and my last name. We'll remain a little bit anonymous on the show. But I want to, for my recommendation, keep on the beer wave for a little bit longer, if you'll allow me, uh, and uh, talk a little bit about an experience I had last week with Leslie. Uh, Her and I, we went down to San Diego. We headed down the five towards a beer festival. It was Stone Brewery's 21st anniversary event. And I must say, what an event they put on down in Escondido. Uh, First of all, incredibly well organized, probably the most organized beer or tasting event I've ever been to. There were no waits to get in to get all my tickets, my, you know, ID checked. There were no waits to, I mean, even use like restrooms, which is something simple, but often overlooked. And best of all, there were certainly no waits to enjoy as much beer as I could ever want. Uh, If you've ever been to a beer tasting before... You may have dealt with like a token system or, you know, a, a ticket system that forced you to perhaps choose only like 10 to 15 breweries that you wanted to. Not at this festival. You could literally, over the course of the hours that you were there, sip and savor everything you could possibly want. And I didn't even have a chance to try everything. There were over 100 beers to try from over 50 different breweries. It was just incredible. I only had to wait one time. And that was at the Russian River Brewing Company booth. And they actually brought Pliny the Elder, which for some of you kind of beer aficionados, you probably know it as kind of being like this holy grail acquisition uh, that everybody probably wants to try. And so I did have a chance to, to enjoy it. And I have to say, it was good. Great IPA for sure. But, I mean, it wasn't life-changing. It certainly wasn't like the best thing I've ever had in, uh, in terms of my beer uh, history. Um, I would recommend recommend it for sure. Very smooth, very citrusy. But I mean, don't like wait hours on end in a line to get this stuff or pay a gazillion dollars. You know, there's plenty of great IPAs out there. So uh, that was great. The setting alone was amazing. It, the, it was up in the hills on the campus of Cal State San Marcos. So it overlooked this valley beautiful hills, beautiful campus, uh, and it was just an enjoyable event all around. And as a bonus, you know, there were plenty of food vendors, and so one of them was called Pizza Port, which is this SoCal staple. They have their own brewing company themselves. So we saw them there. We saw the pizza, smelled it. It was amazing. Uh, and so we decided, you know what, let's not, you know, worry about getting, like, something that's been sitting in an oven or a hot pad for a little while. Let's, let's go there. Let's check it out. And so we did. And uh, it was great. It was really good pizza, really cool vibes there. So 
there you have it. It was a perfect day uh, that ended on perfect pizza. And uh, this week, you get three recommendations in one. You get Stone Brewery, their beer festivals in general, and Pizza Port. So next time you're in Southern California, get yourself there, find a festival, enjoy one for yourself. All right, enough with the beer reviews. Let's get to the music, shall we? Station, hit it. We're here at number 494 with Boz Skaggs' self-titled album, which you would think was his debut just being self-titled alone, and most people do make that mistake. In fact, although this is his U.S. debut that was released in 1969, Skaggs actually released another album called Boz four years prior in Stockholm, Sweden of all places, and it was under the name of William R. Skaggs. Now, it was never released outside of the country or even beyond that initial record pressing. And I imagine it would make for a really great collector's item now. But uh, the Boz, that first album, is not what we're talking about today because it certainly didn't crack any 500 top list. Um, But between Boz Skaggs and Boz, neither of these albums would actually be the first time Skaggs uh, was in the music business. Boz actually starts his career with the Steve Miller Band. Yeah, that's Steve Miller Band. You see, Miller and Skaggs meet in Dallas during their time as students uh, in high school. And during this time, Miller actually teaches Boz how to play guitar. The two eventually graduate, head out to the University of Wisconsin together, where they play in a blues rock band known as the Ardells, and then known as the Fabulous Night Trains. And that's night with a K, which is kind of weird, because why would a night be on a train? That doesn't make sense, but I digress. Skaggs returns to Texas, joins a rhythm and blues band, The Wigs, and it doesn't go so well. You know, they find little success and he goes off to England. He crosses the pond, he roams around a little bit, performs as a street singer, and he actually ends up cutting that Swedish album I was telling you about. But then in 1967, he figures it's time to come back home. And so he moves to San Francisco during the summer of love, right? And fortuitously, he reunites with Steve Miller and now finds himself playing on both Children of the Future and Sailor albums of the Steve Miller Band, which is their first two uh, records. Now, if you listen to these albums, they are very early incarnations of the Steve Miller Band. Um, you don't nearly hear any of the future sound that would go on to be, you know, the like the Joker or, um, you know, Fly Like, and it, none of it, none of it. It's like 1967 San Francisco psychedelic rock, right? I mean, you, they probably got lost in the shuffle of all of it. But uh, between the two records, Skaggs goes ahead and gets himself four original songs, and he actually co-wrote one of them. So he finds a little success there. But by 1969, Skaggs realizes it's time to go off on my own and record my own solo album. So the album, the creation of it and the development of it actually has its roots with Rolling Stone magazine itself. Co-founder, publisher of the magazine, Jan Wenner, helped Skaggs get a recording contract with Atlantic Records when Boz left the Steve Miller Band. Wenner would go on to make up part of the production team, along with Marlon Green, and the two head east to Alabama, where a number of Atlantic talent had recorded in this mystical and magical studio located in the northwest corner of the state called Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. Now, just like the timeline of this album being created, Muscle Shoals had just opened in 1969, but the hit-making team within its doors had been hard at work making a name for themselves as some of the finest studio musicians in the world. 
The Muscle Shoals rhythm section made up of keyboardist Barry Beckett, drummer Roger Hawkins, bassist David Hood, and guitarist Jimmy Johnson. And they go on to appear on a classic recordings by top main artists in virtually every musical genre when they begin their careers in the hit-making house band at Fame Recording Studios. Now these guys are the sound behind Wilson Pickett, Etta James, and Aretha Franklin during the mid to late 60s, so they'd certainly have the chops, without a doubt. And with the support of Atlantic Records, the musicians go on to leave the Fame studio and establish their own studio, Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. Boz Skaggs would be one of the first artists to lay down tracks within the hallowed walls. Now one last ingredient would be needed before the team found the final sound for this album. Enter Dwayne Allman. Yep, that Dwayne Allman. Who at the time was a popular session guitarist, and he was actually working at Muscle Shoals Studio. Um, he goes on to create the Allman Brothers Band, but they're a few months away from recording their debut, so he gets called back in to join this effort uh, on Boz Skaggs. So now that we have all the players established, Boz goes on to record his nine songs for this album. And he introduced himself, as the website No Depression would write, to the world as a weary, pained, and pleading traveler who has carried his burden down a long road just to share these songs with us. In a matter of a few months, it gets released in August of 1969, but the album enters the music market at a very competitive time. I mean, just in terms of heavy hitters, Boz is competing in that year alone with not only Led Zeppelin's first album, but their second album, the MC5 Kick Out the Jams, The Who's Tommy, and The Beatles' Abbey Road. So really, it's not all that surprising that this debut effort only sells around 20,000 copies in its first couple of years. Now I checked Billboard, and really there were no singles that cracked the Billboard Hot 100, and Skaggs wouldn't find commercial success until his seventh album, Silk Degrees, that was released eight years later. That album goes on to be five times platinum though, so he gets there for sure. Over time though, I think this self-titled debut really finds its audience. Obviously it landed a place on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, and that might be due to the influence and success of all the major contributors to the songs over time. Again, referring to that No Depression review, it writes, Boz Skaggs' beautiful songwriting and uniquely tempered voice at its most soulful, the playing and arrangements of the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, and the masterful horn and background voice arrangements all combine with Allman's six-string mastery, producing a result clearly superior to any of its individual parts. All right, so enough with the history. Now that we've established, you know, how Boss Gags came to be, how he recorded, who he's recording with, let's talk about this album. So it opens with a flourish, which you wouldn't get by the title alone called I'm Easy. You know, one could be forgiven to think that this title track, you'd be eased into the album. But the downbeat bass drum kicks it off, you get a hi-hat rattle, and the piano chords keep the throttle full down as Skaggs comes in with his vocals in a catch-and-mouse game with the guitar. You also get, and this will be a theme for sure, plenty of horn section coming at you like a wall of sound and some lovely vocal album, but by what sounds like a trio of women. Um, and man, they are just rocking it. 
Halfway through the track, more instruments are added. You get various saxes, like a tenor and baritone, uh, enough to catch your breath before the second album continues to bring the energy. The sound, while familiar, is new. It kind of ushers in the upcoming 70s with fun rock and lead guitar. And track two opens with one of my favorite instruments, the electric organ. It's called All Be Long Gone, and it slows the album down a bit. It kind of takes that, that real frenetic energy at the opening and kind of slows it down, brings it back, but it sounds amazing. And those horns from the previous songs are back, as well as those ladies backing vocals. It sounds almost like a blend of the songs What the World Needs Now and You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, which perhaps is a hangover from Muscle Shoals, who had just worked with Aretha Franklin two years previously. So maybe they kind of were in that zone. We move on to track three, Another Day, which finds Skaggs belting out kind of a Stax record-inspired single. Very reminiscent of Otis Redding, you continue to get the piano laying down the roadmap with kind of a slowed-down doo-wop influence, for sure. This is followed by track four, Now You're Gone, which goes in a different direction, the bass line guiding the honky-tonk style straight down to Dixie. You really know you've gone down south when the fiddle enters the scene, along with the steel string guitar. It kind of shifts the entire tone of the album from what you previously expected in the first three songs. Moving into track four, Finding Her is next. As the piano is slowly playing key progressions with a tune and cadence of a music box, enter Wailing Guitar, which expands the song towards the blues. With the lyrics and vocal stylings eerie in their delivery, it's kind of like a man speaking to a stranger, perhaps a new lover. The guitar solo is magnificent, creating a dream state, a room filled with fog and strange surroundings. You could almost say the slowed down version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps kind of steadily takes you through different visions of a man with no direction. If you can tell by my imaginative description, this is by far my favorite track of the album. And I really wish it would have been the closing track on this first side of the vinyl. It has this amazing fade out with various instruments playing kind of experimental sounds, almost as if you're floating out into the ether. Instead, side A closes on, look what I got. Another slowly delivered ballad, but this is distinguished by an interesting vocal delivery by Skaggs. It's almost like he's doing a Willie Nelson impersonation. But unlike your traditional country stylings, a trumpet pierces all the percussion and backing instruments like the northern star in the sky. It's a fine song, but ultimately unmemorable and does not invoke the same closing feelings as its predecessor. And that concludes side A, which was what, five, no six, it's six songs because as you flip the album over to side B, we only have three. And it opens with Waiting for a Train, a cover of Jimmy Rogers' Hobo Lament. It's a short two 30 minute song, one that you would imagine would fit in any old school trading post you may stumble into in the South. Even the piano that enters in during the back half is pitched to ragtime perhaps found on Main Street USA. It may even be one of those fancy finangled pianos that plays on its own through the latest astonishing technology from the Yankee North. To top off the sentiment, Boz even provides a little yodel along the way. Now we get to the masterclass, track eight, which is nearly a quarter of the album runtime is devoted to this one track alone called Loan Me a Dime. 
This is where Dwayne Allman shines brightest, with his soulful guitar that pleads and wails as the drum cymbals are tapped in cadence of a rain shower coming down on the porch during an afternoon storm. This is the track where maybe I should be trading in my Davy Brown Ale for some whiskey, because man, like this is, you picture it raining outside, you're just chilling, listening to the song, drinking whiskey, that's a good day for sure. You remember this track, the next time that happens, break out your bottle of Whistling Pig or Bullet Rye, you're going to have a good time. After the song concludes, after its, you know, 12 minute runtime, the album finishes with what's called Sweet Release, which has the uphill battle of following the masterpiece before it. Surprisingly though, it, the track title fits this perfectly, as does its placement in the album. It's like the sun breaking through the clouds after the storm is finished. It's cathartic. It is needed after the weight of what just followed. It provides that feeling of walking through the woods after the rain, when the trees are slowly dripping drops of water, and everything in front of you looks clearer in the light. The track actually carries with it that same power that Prockel Harem's Wider Shade of Pale does. Clarity and meaning that comes in form once again through an electric organ, which is played expertly along with all the other instruments gathered together. It's as if everyone who had a chance to participate in the previous eight tracks is coming back together and saying their goodbyes, their curtain calls, a true masterclass in wrapping up an album. And as I listen to this album a second and third time, everything remains true to form. But what stands out above everything else is the horn section. For sure the guitar playing and vocals are on point, but when paired with the power and brass of those backing musicians, everything comes together to ensure this album isn't just another singer-songwriter poetic release. Those trumpets and horns allow each track to flourish, providing a lasting memory and full-on wall of sound that is so unexpected but pivotal to the listening experience. So, what am I spinning today, you may ask? Well, once again, my vinyl comes from Atomic Records in Burbank, California. This particular version is a used copy of the original U.S. pressing from 1969, so I do have an original. Um, but uh, the top right corner of mine uh, has a kind of black X, uh, probably in Sharpie, which is weird. I don't know why they would have done that, but it's kind of a bummer, but that's okay. The album cover itself is very reminiscent of a previous feature of ours, Bonnie Raitt's Give It Up, and that it doesn't strike you on first glance. On the cover is the long, gangly Boz Skaggs, standing tall in a rockabilly suit with a high collar. The image could almost be pulled off an up-and-coming songwriter's Instagram today. It's filtered in sepia tone, with only his name standing out in a shade of Carolina baby blue. Skaggs is standing on a slanted hill in front of a white door. Where it leads, who knows? It's certainly not Muscle Shoals Music Studio, whose iconic walls are built out of concrete block, and that would be easily identifiable. No, perhaps the entrance is made to be unknown and mysterious, beckoning the listener to come on inside. I've got a tune to share with you before continuing your journey along the road, Boz Skaggs says. The back cover is also similar to the Raid album, featuring another photo of Skaggs in a more jovial, or at least comfortable moment. The image is in black and white. The photographer has captured his smile and laughter and the light that shines on him, as the negative space in black hides Skaggs' surroundings again, making the listener unaware of time or location for the album. The photo is framed in a burnt orange frame with stylized corners, 
track listing located on the right with liner notes below. Another trait of the singer-songwriter of Skaggs himself carries over into the record sleeve. Now most sleeves are blank canvases, or often space to be filled with advertisement, but not with this record. It's actually printed in the style of a composition notepad, one that many of you may be picking up right now as you gear up for the start of the new school year. This particular vinyl plays magnificently, with no scratches or pressing issues to worry your listening experience. Now, the album itself may not have changed the music scene, and with lesser artists contributing to the final product, perhaps you would have gotten this lost within the decade of the 60s. But this album finds a way to bring out the singer-songwriter from down south, a region where that type of artist is not always heard within this era due to the 70s rock stylings that would follow with Leonard Skinner and others. The true beauty is found with those last two songs. I would put that pairing as one of the best one-two punches to close out an album in any contest. This is the beauty of this process for me. I get to have these moments of inspiration from artists that I've never even heard of. And for that, I'm thankful. And there you have it. Another episode in the bags. This was episode seven, Boz Skaggs. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another installment of Chasing Rolling Stones. I would strongly encourage any of my listeners to please leave a comment or suggestion either through email uh, at chasingrollingstones at gmail.com, or you can even shoot us a note on the website www.chasingrollingstones.com. That website is also a location where you'll find my blog with a little more info on each of the albums featured in the episode. Photos, links, and sources will all be listed there as well. And don't forget, we are on social. You can find the show at both Twitter and Instagram at the handle at chasing underscore RS. And as a special request from me, please, please, please feel free to give us a rating and review on the show's iTunes page. I promise you a little bit will go a long way to letting others know that this show exists, and I would certainly be most appreciative. Now, before we end, a big thank you to Blank and Kit for the theme song of the show, RSPN, as well as Andy G. Cohen and Jazzar for this week's backing music. As I do every week, I would absolutely like to thank Leslie for all of her support and encouragement in following my passions. We just celebrated seven years together with a great night out in Hollywood, and it was amazing. She inspires me each and every week. And speaking of inspiration, a special thank you to Rolling Stone Magazine for being the inspiration for this show. I'll see you all next week as we finally enter the new millennium and look at number 493 on the list. Two iconic Chicago towers and 200,000 internet downloads led to an instant classic. Find out which album we're talking about next week on Chasing Rolling Stones. Thanks, everyone, and be excellent to each other. (laughs) 